Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the opening chapters of From Silence to Song, The Davidic Liturgical Revolution by Peter J. Lightheart. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full audiobook now on Canon Plus. Chapter 1. The Problem of Davidic Worship That day, the dusty road leading into Jerusalem and up into the stronghold of Zion was packed. All the elders of Israel were there, and the children lining the road caught glimpses of David's mighty men, armor flashing in the sun, men whose exploits had been told at every hearth in the land. At the center of the procession was a cluster of Levites in their white linen robes, carrying the Ark of the Covenant the throne of Yahweh, hidden from sight by layers of fabric. Every time they took six steps, they stopped to offer sacrifices before taking a seventh. The noise was deafening. The tumult of trumpets and horns, the splash of cymbals, the eerie, aching melodies of harp and lyre, the drone of the Levitical singers. And at the head of the procession, David, the great King David, danced like a fool before his king, wearing a linen ephod. When the procession reached Zion, the Levites took an ark into the tent that David had prepared for it, and then sacrifices of peace offerings were slaughtered, and every family was treated to a meal in the Lord's presence. They stood in wonder as David's new Levitical choir sang praises to Yahweh before the tent. After David blessed them, they returned home, hearts full of gladness. No one could remember a procession or a celebration like this and they had to reach far back into the memory of Israel for comparisons. It reminded some of stories they had read or heard about the procession following the exodus from Egypt, when Miriam took the timbrel and led the women in dance and song. Others thought of the procession that had encircled Jericho, the priests blowing trumpets before Yahweh's throne for six days until the Lord crumbled the city's walls. Yahweh, they concluded, was conquering another city but this time in order to make it his own. In an article on the Ark narrative in Chronicles, Tamara Eskenazi concluded that the enthronement of Yahweh in Jerusalem was an event of global, even cosmic, significance. She goes on, No other event in Chronicles, not even the dedication of the temple, is enshrined in such broad-reaching terms and imagery. Few Israelites would have explained the event they witnessed, as Eskenazi does, but as each family descended from the height of Zion in the light of the setting sun, many realized, however dimly, that something very big, something even bigger than they could grasp, had happened before their eyes. And no wonder. By the time David became king, the throne of Yahweh had been in exile from Israel for a century. At the Battle of Aphek, the Philistines captured the Ark, and even though it was returned seven months later, it was sent to the home of Abinadab of Kiriath-Jerim, a Gibeonite town, in an area jointly settled by the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, 1 Samuel 4.1-7.2. After David conquered Jerusalem and made it his capital, he soon decided to bring the Ark into the city to him. For the first time in a century, the Ark was back where it belonged, in the midst of Israel and for the first time ever it resided in Jerusalem. 
the tent which David had pitched for it, 2 Samuel 6, 17, 1 Chronicles 16, 1, was the first sanctuary that Israel ever established in Jerusalem, and it was the only place of worship ever set up on Zion. Throughout David's reign, the ark remained in this tent, and David organized the Levites to worship there. Meanwhile, the Mosaic tabernacle, without the ark, continued to operate in Gibeon, some seven miles northwest of the capital, 1 Chronicles 16, 39-43. Eventually, the ark was reunited with the rest of the tabernacle furniture in the Temple of Solomon, 1 Kings 8, 1 through 11, 2 Chronicles 5, 2 through 14. Christians have devoted much effort to understanding the typological and theological significance of the Mosaic Tabernacle and the Temple of Solomon, but comparatively little effort has been expended on study of the liturgical situation in the time of David or its implications for Christian worship. The scholarly literature is relatively sparse. Commentators on Samuel and Chronicles, of course, mention David's tent and the worship performed there, but few articles and monographs have attempted to study it in detail. This book explores this moment in Israel's history, this moment of divided worship, in an attempt to grasp the significance of David's tent and its liturgy. Encouraged by suggestive comments like those of Eskenazi, I have several reasons for suspecting that such an examination will repay the time and effort. First, the Ark Shrine of David and the worship that Israel performed there marked a crucial advance in Israel's liturgical history. From what we can learn in the Pentateuch, Israel's worship in the Mosaic period was virtually silent. Verbal confession was required on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16.21, and we can infer that confession often accompanied the presentation of animal offerings. Trumpets were blown over the morning and evening ascension offerings, Numbers 10, 9-10, but no other liturgical music is explicitly mentioned. By contrast, as we shall see, chapter 4, the worship of the Davidic tabernacle was mainly worship in song, and the Levitical choir and orchestra was later incorporated into temple worship in the days of Solomon. When Christians sing hymns and psalms in worship, when we play organs or pianos, guitars or trumpets, we are heirs of the Davidic liturgical revolution. Because David's reign saw the inception of worship through song, the portions of the Bible that describe this period, especially Chronicles, provide more material on worship music than any other section of the Bible. Attention to these passages will help to address both long-standing and contemporary debates about church music. Reformed liturgists have long debated the propriety of instrumental music in worship, for example, and there are no passages of Scripture more relevant to this question than those having to do with the Davidic tabernacle. Though I make no attempt to answer all the specific questions that have been or are being debated throughout the church, I hope that this book provides some fresh directions for groping toward answers. If I provide few answers, I hope at least to provoke additional and perhaps fundamental questions. Some liturgists, including Reformed liturgists, may object that I am looking in the wrong place for guidance concerning the theology and practice of Christian worship. Instead of examining the Old Testament, which describes a form of worship that has been fulfilled and set aside in Christ, we should concentrate on New Testament passages concerning worship, especially certain chapters of 1 Corinthians. Other liturgists seek guidance for Christian worship from the example of the Jewish synagogue, considered origin and fount of Christian worship. 
I address these objections at somewhat more length in the concluding chapter, but a word must be said at this point about the hermeneutical assumptions underlying the reformed regulative principle of worship. In the hands of at least some writers, the regulative principle is, in practice, hermeneutically wooden and theologically Marcionite. It is wooden because an explicit command is required for every act of worship, and it is Marcionite because it ignores the abundant Old Testament liturgical instruction in favor of exegeting a few passages of the New. Refuting the Marcionite assumption must be left for another time, but the woodenness of regulativism is directly addressed by the passages studied in this book. As I will argue below, David's reorganization of worship at the tabernacle in Jerusalem was based on Mosaic ceremonial law, yet it was an expansive and creative application of the law, without ceasing to be an application. David's liturgical revolution thus provides a canonical illustration of how the law was applied in liturgical matters. By examining these portions of Scripture, furthermore, we can see that the church's sacrifice of praise grew out of an application of Levitical law. By showing the subtlety of the law's relation to Davidic worship, this study offers some hints about the scriptural regulation of worship in general and shows the relevance of Levitical liturgics to Christian worship. See chapter 6. The Davidic system of worship is also important for understanding redemptive history, the hope of Israel as expressed by the prophets, and the fulfillment of this hope in the early church. Here the questions have to do with the redemptive logic of the history that we will be reviewing. Why did God set up his house in Jerusalem in this particular way? Why did he not move smoothly and directly from the Mosaic tabernacle to the Solomonic temple? Why tear the tabernacle apart first? And why separate the ark from the Mosaic tent for more than a century? Why set up an ark shrine in Jerusalem for a generation before bringing the rest of the sanctuary to the capital city? Amos 9, 11 and 12, and specifically its use by James at the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, 16 through 18, makes it clear that the tabernacle of David was typologically significant. I argue in chapter 5 that Amos prophesied the restoration of the Davidic form of worship, as well as the Davidic kingdom, and that James recognized that this restoration was taking place in the apostolic period. Its importance is made even more evident when we recall that the Davidic tabernacle was the only sanctuary ever established on Mount Zion. After Solomon built the temple, he transferred the ark from Zion to Moriah, 2 Chronicles 3.1, and in so doing, transferred Zion and all its associations to the temple. But the original significance of Zion was not lost. The application of Zion language to the temple was an extension of the Davidic system to the temple system. In short, the Davidic tabernacle on Zion was somehow more fundamental to Israel's worship, life, and future than the temple system. Further, the prophets always use the language of Zion to describe the future restoration of Jerusalem. Never once did an Old Testament prophet announce that Moriah would be raised up to be chief of the mountains. Always and everywhere, the promise is that Zion will be exalted to become the praise of the earth. Along similar lines, the prophets never held out the hope for a restoration of the glory of Solomon's reign. Solomon is mentioned only once in the prophetic books, in Jeremiah 52, 
a narrative passage that is identical to the last chapter of 2 Kings. Instead, the prophetic hope always was framed in terms of a restored Davidic king, or of the restoration of David himself to the throne of Israel. Israel's eschatology always focused on David, not Solomon, and Zion, not Moriah. This striking emphasis will, I hope, make somewhat more sense after we examine the features of and the worship at the Ark Sanctuary that was the center of Israel's worship during that time. At many points in this book, I acknowledge that many of my conclusions, both large and small, are tentative. But I hope at least that I have given a plausible explanation for the excitement that attended the great procession into Zion on the day when David, the great King David, danced like a fool before the throne of his king, wearing a linen ephod. Chapter 2. According to the Pattern The establishment of Davidic worship is described in two passages of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 13-16. I have dealt with the former passage in my commentary on Samuel and will not repeat all of that material here. Several points should, however, be noted. First, Samuel as a whole represents David as the new Israel, and 2 Samuel 6 in particular is organized to highlight analogies between David's capture of Jerusalem and Joshua's conquest of Canaan. From this perspective, the establishment of the Ark Shrine in Jerusalem was the end point of a renewed conquest, see Joshua 18.1. Related to the conquest theme, 2 Samuel 5-8 through cycle through a victory house-building sequence several times. First David, or Yahweh, fights and defeats an enemy, and then a household is built. From this angle, the Ark Shrine represents the divine warrior's enthronement, his sabbatical rest after his triumph over Philistia. Within the larger context of the book of Samuel, this section continues the story that began in 1 Samuel 4-6 through with the Philistine capture of the Ark after the Battle of Aphek. In 2 Samuel 6, the Ark's exile is finally coming to a conclusion. Chronicles, however, treats David's reign and the ascension of the Ark to Zion in a very different manner. David is not presented as a new Israel, and thus the establishment of the Ark at Zion is not seen as the completion of a new conquest. The victory house-building pattern appears in Chronicles, but is subordinated to other themes, and since the chronicler does not mention Aphek, the establishment of the Ark in Jerusalem is not pictured as the reversal of Aphek. Not only does Chronicles set the story of the Ark in a very different context from Samuel, but it also includes many details not found in the earlier book. Taking note of these differences will enable us to grasp the importance of David's tabernacle to the chronicler. Two stories, one David. For starters, 1 Chronicles completely leaves out the conflicts between David and Saul, and between David's house and Saul's house. While 1 Samuel devotes 15 chapters to Saul's persecution of David, 16-31, 1 Chronicles recounts Saul's reign in one brief chapter, 10-1-14, and the only event recorded is the Battle of Gilboa, at which Saul died. Further, 1 Chronicles leaves out the early years of David's reign, when David was fighting with Saul's son Ishbosheth, whereas several chapters of 2 Samuel describe this struggle, chapters 2-4. First Chronicles moves directly from the death of Saul, chapter 10, 
to the gathering of Israel at Hebron to anoint David king over all the tribes, chapters 11 and 12. More generally, the seven years of David's reign in Hebron over the tribe of Judah are virtually bypassed. Instead of recounting a contested succession, the chronicler writes simply that Yahweh killed Saul and turned the kingdom to David the son of Jesse, 1014. Second, First Chronicles devotes a great deal more attention to the ceremony of David's coronation at Hebron than Samuel. 2 Samuel describes the event in five terse verses, 5, 1-5, but 1 Chronicles spends two entire chapters, 11 and 12, on the event. These chapters record other incidents and information as well. The conquest of Jerusalem, 11, 4-9, compare 2 Samuel 5, 6-10. A list of David's mighty men, 11, 10-47, compare 2 Samuel 23, 8-39 and a list of the men who came to David in Ziklag, 12, 1-22, no parallel in 2 Samuel. Yet the chapters are a single unit, framed by an inclusio concerning the coronation ceremony at Hebron. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before Yahweh, and they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of Yahweh through Samuel, 11:3. All these, being men of war who could draw up in battle formation, came to David with a perfect heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of one mind to make David king. 1238. What seems a fairly low key affair in 2 Samuel 5 becomes a tremendous ceremony in 1 Chronicles, attended by more than 300,000 fighting men from every tribe. 1223 through 37. Another change has to do with the order of events between David's coronation as king over all Israel and the ascension of the ark to Jerusalem. The sequence in 2 Samuel is as follows. Conquest of Jerusalem, 5, 6-10. David's palace and family, 5, 11-16. Two battles with the Philistines, 5, 17-25. The ark taken to Zion, failed first attempt, 6, 1-11. The ark taken to Zion, successful second attempt, 6, 12 through 19. Michael's complaint against David, 6, 20 through 23. The Davidic covenant, 7, 1 through 29. First Chronicles 13 through 16 records the same events in a different order. First attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem, 13, 1 through 14. David's palace and family, 14, 1 through 7. Two battles with the Philistines, 14, 8 through 17. Second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem. 151 through 1643 the davidic covenant 171 through 27 though the order is different in chronicles the victory house building pattern is still evident only after yahweh has defeated the philistines does his throne ascend to zion in addition chronicles includes a great deal more information about the procession of the ark and its establishment in the zion tent levites are listed at length 15, 1 through 24, 16, 4 through 6, 16, 37 through 38. And the role of music in Davidic worship, which is not even mentioned in 2 Samuel, is emphasized. Several effects of these changes may be noted. First, the chronicler presents a more uniformly positive picture of David than 2 Samuel does. Though 2 Samuel's portrayal is generally favorable, the author records David's sins without flinching. 
The more positive presentation in Chronicles is evident even in some subtle details of the chronicler's treatment. For example, the list of mighty men in 2 Samuel 23 ends with Uriah the Hittite, a powerful reminder of David's sin with Bathsheba that provides an introduction to the story of David's further sin in the following chapter. By contrast, in the similar record of mighty men in 1 Chronicles 11, Uriah's name is buried in the middle of the list, verse 41, with no special attention paid to him. Similarly, 1 Chronicles 20 begins with an almost verbatim repetition of 2 Samuel 11. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out. 2 Samuel 11, 1, 1 Chronicles 20, 1. 2 Samuel 11, 1 ends with the statement that David stayed at Jerusalem, and the remainder of chapter 11 and much of chapter 12 record the story of David's adultery and murder. 1 Chronicles 20, 1 adds the sentence, And David struck Rabbah and overthrew it, which is similar to the statement in 2 Samuel 12, 26, after David's sin. In a single verse, 1 Chronicles 20, 1, the chronicler skips from the opening of 2 Samuel 11 to the end of 2 Samuel 12. That is to say, he ignores the whole story of Bathsheba and Uriah. Another effect of these changes is to shift the emphasis of David's reign. In 2 Samuel, David is in the main a great warrior king. Prior to his sin with Bathsheba, Samuel records his victory over Ishbosheth, his conquest of Jerusalem, two victories over the Philistines, and his triumphs in assorted wars with the Moabites, Ammonites, Arameans, and others. 2 Samuel 2 through 5 and 8. Much of this material is repeated in Chronicles, but the chronicler embeds David's life as a warrior in descriptions of David's other activities, and as a result, David as warrior king takes a secondary position to his other roles. In particular, what comes to the foreground are David's efforts to prepare for the eventual building of the temple. 2 Samuel includes virtually no information about this, 2 Samuel 8.11 tells us that David dedicated the spoils of war to the Lord, but it is not even clear in that passage how the dedicated spoils were to be used. In Chronicles, David, even more than Solomon, is presented as the temple builder, the one who founded the worship of Israel in Jerusalem. David organized the Levites and priests for musical ministry at the Tabernacle of David, 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, reassigned Levites to ministry at the temple that Solomon would build, 1 Chronicles 23-27, delivered the plans for the temple to Solomon, 1 Chronicles 28-19, and gathered, protected, and inventoried materials and builders for the temple, 1 Chronicles 22-14-16, and 29-1-5. This emphasis is apparent when we compare the chronicler's account of an event of David's reign with that of Samuel. Both 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24 tell about David's purchase of the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. This location becomes the temple site, but we never learn that in 2 Samuel. That information comes in 2 Chronicles 3.1. Further, 1 Chronicles 21 includes details that are not found in 2 Samuel 24. When David built the altar on the threshing floor and called on Yahweh, he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. 1 Chronicles 21-26. This scene does not appear in 2 Samuel 24. Instead, it is reminiscent of Leviticus 9-24, when the Lord's fire consumed the sacrificial portions on the altar 
at the end of the rite dedicating the Mosaic tabernacle and consecrating Aaron and his sons as priests. In Leviticus, this is the sign that Yahweh has taken up residence in his house and has accepted Aaron's offerings. And David got the same message when the Lord's fire consumed his offering at the threshing floor of Aruna. David recognized that Yahweh's fire had designated this location as the place where he would dwell, and said, in a statement not found in 2 Samuel, This is the house of Yahweh God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. 1 Chronicles 22.1 Through this event, David recognized that Yahweh had authorized sacrificial worship in Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah. Thus, what 2 Samuel 24 presents mainly as a real estate transaction becomes a temple founding in 1 Chronicles 21. Given this background, it is no surprise that the chronicler describes Solomon's temple building as a completion of the work that David had begun. Solomon built the temple where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place that David had prepared, 2 Chronicles 3.1. Temple utensils are described as dedicated things of David his father, even the silver and the gold and all the utensils, 2 Chronicles 5.1. And the temple fulfills the promises of Yahweh to David, 2 Chronicles 6, 4-6. For the chronicler, David was not so much a warrior as a worshiper, not so much hero as Hierophant. David the New Moses Consistent with this overall liturgical interest, Chronicles presents David as a new Moses, who, with the great prophet, co-founded the worship of Israel. The simple fact that Chronicles devotes so much space to David's preparations for the temple is enough to bring out parallels with Moses, since much of the revelation given to Moses concerned the tabernacle, its furnishings, and its worship. Exodus 25-31, 35-40, Leviticus, Numbers 3-9. Like Moses, David ensured that the plundered riches of Yahweh's enemies were devoted to the service of his house. The chronicler also appeals to the commands and ordinances of David as authoritative instruction for Israel's worship. This is not to say that Chronicles subverts the liturgical authority of Moses, as the repetition of the phrase, as Moses commanded, indicates, the Mosaic ceremonial laws remained authoritative for Israel throughout the period of the monarchy, 1 Chronicles 6.49, 15, 2 Chronicles 8, 12, and 13, 23, 18, 24, 6, and 9, 35, 6. Alongside these references to Moses, however, the chronicler also refers with some frequency to the liturgical authority of David. In 2 Chronicles 8, 13, and 14, David's ordinance concerning the division of priests for their service and the Levites for their duties is set alongside the commandment of Moses concerning the festival calendar of Israel. Similarly, 2 Chronicles 23, 18 records that Jehoiada placed the offices of the house of the Lord under the authority of the Levitical priests, whom David had assigned over the house of Yahweh, to offer up the ascension offerings of Yahweh, as it is written in the law of Moses. When Josiah celebrated the Passover, he instructed the Levites to prepare yourselves by your father's households, in your divisions, according to the writing of David, king of Israel, and according to the writing of his son Solomon. 2 Chronicles 35.4 the Levitical musicians at Josiah's Passover were also at their stations according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, the king's seer, 2 Chronicles 35.15. 
If David was a new Moses, Solomon was a new Joshua, whose temple building is implicitly compared to the conquest. David's frequent encouragement to Solomon to be strong and courageous, 1 Chronicles 22.13, 28.10, and 20, echoes Moses' instructions to Joshua, his successor. See Joshua 1, 7, 9, 18, Deuteronomy 31, 6-7, and 23. As Joshua was to cling to the word of the Lord delivered through Moses, Joshua 1, 7, and 8, so Solomon was to walk in the way of the Lord's commandment as your father David walked, 1 Kings 3, 14, 9, 4. The notion that David is a new Moses, founding a new cult, helps to explain some of the peculiarities of the tabernacle of David. After the Exodus, Moses pitched a tent outside the camp, Exodus 35, 7-11, and later organized the building of the tabernacle and turned its care over to the priests. Similarly, after David's Exodus from Philistia, he erected a tent on Zion and then organized the building of a temple, which was eventually turned over to the care of priests. And just as Moses had direct access to Yahweh in the tent of meeting, so David had direct access to Yahweh in the tent on Zion. See more in chapter 3. The parallels between David and Moses are not exact, but in each case the sanctuary was established in two stages, a sequence repeated in the post-exilic period. For the altar was restored some twenty years before the temple was completed, Ezra 3, 1-6, 4-24, 6, 13-18. As we shall see, this sequence of sanctuaries came to ultimate fruition in the New Covenant. The Song at the Center of the World Though the chronicler's account of David's reign begins in chapter 11, the main themes have already been signaled in the first ten chapters of the book, and these chapters help to specify the focal point of the chronicler's liturgical interests. Famously, 1 Chronicles begins with nine chapters of mainly genealogical information, plus a mantra thrown in for good measure. Though these chapters are sometimes little more than lists, a number of key theological issues are introduced. The first half of chapter 1 is devoted to the generations between Adam and Abraham, 1, 1 1-27, which, as William Johnston has pointed out, sets the descendants of Abraham within the context of the whole family of mankind. Moreover, the brief narrative fragments in this genealogy highlight the fact that man's history is characterized from the beginning by a pattern of false starts and abortive restarts. Nimrod, the mighty one in the earth, verse 10, represents the violence that spread throughout the world, while the chronicler's reference to the division of the earth, verse 19, reminds us of the conflicts among nations after the flood. Before Israel is introduced into the chronicler's history, then, some of the central effects of sin have been identified. In this context, Israel's calling is made clear. Israel is to realize on behalf of mankind what mankind as a whole cannot. The arrangement of the tribal genealogies of Israel, furthermore, shows how Israel was to address evils that characterize the Gentile world. James B. Jordan has suggested that the genealogies as a whole are arranged chiastically. A. Roots of Israel, 1 Chronicles 1.1 through 2.2. B. Judah, royal tribe, 2.3 through 4.23. Simeon attached, 4.23 through 43. C. Transjordan tribes east of the Jordan River, chapter 5. D. Levi, 
chapter 6. C prime, cisjordan tribes west of the Jordan River, chapter 7. B prime, Benjamin, royal tribe, chapter 8. A prime, Jerusalem, 9, 1 through 34. 1, Judah, verses 3 through 6. 2, Benjamin, verses 7 through 9. 3, priests, verses 10 through 13. 4, Levites, verses 14 through 34. The position of the Levites is particularly noteworthy here. They are central to the structure, the hinge on which the world genealogy turns, and Levites reappear at the climax of the genealogies. Adam's race, as it were, comes most fully to itself in the ministry of the Levites in Jerusalem. Worship is the goal of humanity, and worship is also the means by which Israel is to realize her mission among the nations. Structurally, the emphasis on the Levites is specified further, for the genealogy of Levi in chapter 6 is itself arranged chiastically. A. Priests, 6, 1-16. B. Levites, 6, 17-30. C. Levitical musicians, 6, 31-47. B. Prime, Levitical ministry in general, 6, 48. A. Prime, priestly line, 6, 49-53. Thus, the central section of the chronicler's genealogical summary of world history lists Levites, whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of Yahweh after the ark rested, 631. Not worship in general, but specifically musical worship. Worship in song is the chronicler's central concern. In the context of the genealogies, the focus on Levitical song is making a large point about the role of music in human history. Adam's race is created for song, destined to become a great Levitical chorus. And song is the means, or one of the means, by which Adam's race will reach this end. In this way, the genealogies anticipate the emphasis on music that is found throughout the remainder of Chronicles, and in the account of David's reign in particular. Under David, and at the Davidic tabernacle, Israel begins to sing the eschatological song of the race of the new Adam. Why that song begins in David's reign will become apparent when the eschatological features of the Davidic tent have been explored, an expedition undertaken in the next chapter. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full audiobook for From Silence to Song, now on Canon Plus. Oh,